0: Hey, on this episode of Unbeatable, you're going to hear from Dan Wise, this guy who was a smooth talking salesman who got identified to go run a medical clinic in Georgia while he was living in Florida and basically got offered the dream job of a lifetime. But he knew that there was something that wasn't legit about this. And then there's a moment where he's getting into his Chevy Camaro convertible and getting ready to back out of the parking lot and there's a knock on the window and it's Drug Enforcement Agency pulling him out of the car and charging him with criminal activity for pushing pills and then Dan's life spirals out of control and something amazing happens to him while he's serving a federal prison sentence. You're gonna be blown away by Dan Wise's story. In this episode of Unbeatable, these stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Dan, thanks so much for joining me for this episode of Unbeatable.
1: Uh, no problem. Thank you for having
0: me. Yeah, it's good to have you uh, on this episode. Hey, um, let's start off a little bit by talking about the events uh, of your childhood and kind of. Your early upbringing, which led to the event that I want everybody to hear about, when the um, in law enforcement bust in the front doors of a clinic that you're managing and put you in handcuffs. I don't want to ruin the surprise, so I want to take a little bit of time to get to this point. Um, sure. Tell everybody a little bit about uh, growing up in in South Florida, about your family, uh, those kind of things. Will you?
1: Sure. Um, yeah. So I moved to South Florida when I was very little from Connecticut. Uh, I was like three or four years old when we moved to uh, Boynton Beach, Florida.
0: Because it's a little bit nicer in Boynton Beach, Florida in January than Connecticut, right?
1: Yes. Yes. It's. Uh. I've been in Connecticut a few times as an adult and uh, my kids live in New York City. So I, I, I like to go visit those areas, but Florida's got a beach yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: But, um. You know, growing up as a kid, uh, I, I thought I was a pretty normal kid for the most part. You know, my parents separated when I was very little. I was like seven years old when my uh, parents separated. Um, I had older parents as it was. My father was in his 60s when I was born and my mother, wow. she was in late 40s. And, uh, you know, my father was an alcoholic. Um, he wasn't he wasn't abusive towards me. Uh huh. But apparently, from stories from uh, because I have older brothers, they apparently he was he was much more abusive when he was younger, um, and abusive towards my mother. But uh, I never never physically or personally witnessed any of that. So for me, you know, it was just stuff that I would hear about. Um, My mother, uh, when they separated, my mother she was a nurse, she Uh was a uh, CNA, certified nurse's aide. And she worked mostly night shifts, so she wasn't home very often. So she would go to work at like seven at night and come back uh, in the morning. And I would sometimes go to school, sometimes wouldn't go to school. Uh-huh. There really nobody there to kind of kind of push in on that. Um, I didn't mess around with drugs or anything in my youth. I didn't drink any alcohol. Uh, I don't think I had my first sip of alcohol until I was probably somewhere in my 20s. And uh, tried weed for the first time in my mid to late 20s. Um, So drugs was never really a thing you would think with everything I've, you know, all the mess ups that happened later on, Uh you would think drugs and alcohol played a role. But really what it was, was uh, I had, I had some friends that lived in, in a really nice neighborhood. And at this point in my life, I lived when my parents separated, uh, my mother ended up moving into a mobile home park in South Florida. I know all about that. Yep. And, but she was a nurse and she became a private care nurse. So she was working for an older gentleman at his house. And there was this uh, community called Atlantis in South Florida, city of Atlantis, a um, uh, very wealthy neighborhood. So my mom started me bringing me to work because there was a, a kid, uh, his son or adopted son was about my age, his kid Colin. So we ended up becoming pretty good friends. So for the next few years, I would spend a lot of time at his house living in like luxury and yeah. getting to go to country clubs and playing on golf carts and you know, all these things that that the Richie, uh, Rich, Richie that the privileged white kids got to do richie rich and all of richie the other uh, all of his friends, all get of his to do. friends. Yeah. yeah um so it was really cool but as i got a little bit older and started kind of getting ready to enter into high school i started realizing like when we'd go to the country club and hang out and they've got their tabs on their parents tabs and they're uh-huh. paying for all these things the, the thought started crossing my mind it's like man you know this is great but a few years from now, the only way I'm going to still be seeing them or running into them is if I happen to get a job here and I'm busting the table or I'm a right. waiter. Yeah. Um, so I think something set in my mind that at that point, like I, I didn't want to settle for, for a regular job. I didn't want to, I, I wanted all of these nice things, but I didn't have a plan or a method to get there. So I started kind of developing uh, my sales ability, I guess. And I, I started getting into sales School wasn't my thing. I dropped out of high school in, uh the end of ninth grade. And Wait a
0: second. I, you were in ninth grade when you dropped out of high school?
1: Yeah. No, it was the uh, beginning of ninth or the end of ninth or beginning of tenth. It, it's all such wow. a blur.
0: And yeah. mom was, of course, dad's out of the picture, and mom is working nights and probably sleeping most of the day, so you really don't have a whole lot of people um, that are steering oh, yeah, you towards staying in nobody, school, right?
1: There's nobody kicking my butt to go to school.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm saying this, uh, I'm, I'm going to pause on this one for just a second because more than a few people are thinking about or make the decision to drop out of school. And then I, I don't know one of them that doesn't look back later on and say, man, why did I do that? That was a massive mistake. Did you get to that point, um, later on and saying, I, I wish I would have stuck around.
1: Um, <laughs> I'm going to say no to that. Oh, he's the exception I- to the rule. I honestly, I don't think I am the exception. I think more people will relate once you really break it down. Uh, I, I didn't comprehend in school. It wasn't yeah. even a matter of, I mean, even if my parents would have stuck me in there. A lot of the ways that children learn and, and uh, the abilities of learning and the comprehension, it's it, school was such a not even boring. Boring's not the word. It was I was so terrified of really? embarrassment of of I knew I would have nightmares of. Yeah showing up to class and whatever subject or topic they were doing and not being able to comprehend and follow along and just feeling really dumb and out of place. Um, So those, those anxiety fears of feeling were part of the reason that I would skip school. It wasn't until later on in life. And we'll talk about that when we get there, when I, when I actually got my, because I tried to get my, after I dropped out of high school, I dropped out with two other friends who dropped Uh out at the same time. Um, we all went to to get our GEDs together, and they both passed theirs, and I I flunked mine. I flunked really? mine so bad that midway through the GED, I kind of did the Christmas tree thing on the, the <laughs> yeah, did, on the little the bubble test, just, right? They were they were so elusive of the answers of what I was supposed yeah. to be putting. Um, but later on in life, when I took my GED, same GED test, I, I guess the practical skills that I've learned yeah. through life something kicked in and it was like all of this stuff that I didn't know when I was younger. I, I somehow knew all of these things now without even knowing that I knew it. So I don't regret dropping out of school. I regret doing it where I, I guess I regret not understanding why I dropped yeah, out of school. Yeah. Like I didn't, I didn't know why I felt so stupid at the time. I, I, I just was embarrassed by it and just never really looked back. Um,
0: yeah, so if I got the timing right, you're 13 or 14 years old when you drop out of school, and you're pretty much on your own at this point, right? Because dad's out of the picture and mom is working hard, but she's
1: not around very often. Oh, uh, I I was like 15, 16. Okay, yeah. yeah, but but yeah, even even when my father was around, he was much much older. Yeah, uh, didn't have a great. Re- I mean, I had an okay relationship with him towards the end when I you know, because as a kid, my mother was indoctrinating me with all of this. Uh-huh. Your father's abusive. He's a woman beater and telling me these things when I was very small, too young to really even understand what yeah. that meant. But I had this predetermined idea of my father, just a piece of garbage who I didn't want to spend any time with. But as I got a little bit older, despite all the things that he did or maybe did or didn't do, um, he wasn't a bad guy, like to me, at least. So I, right. I, I felt like I missed out on a lot of that. And then cancer caught up and was it was like a matter of months it went from zero to sixty. he was very active up until uh, he still owned uh, he had uh, gas stations that he owned uh-huh. and he was very active in those until pretty much until like the last month of his life um but it was too little too late by then for me to really forge any kind of relationship
0: and you were in your teens when he died
1: yeah yep I was I was sixteen yeah so you got this aptitude for sales what do you do with it uh so when I dropped out of high school um I was Figuring out jobs, I was valley parking cars, bussing tables, and I was just like, "Oh my god!" Like there is, I have no education, and how am I going to make money? Uh, Somebody offered me a job at, a, I think it was called Ramada, on like the Ramada hotel, the hotel a,
0: chain, yeah, oh yeah.
1: But they have a vacation sales chain for Ramada that would sell like these time package things. And it was like, hey, you come in here. It's, uh, it's like eight to nine hours on the phone every day. We'll give you a few hundred bucks a week. And if you sell anything, you'll get a little commission. And I had no idea like what sales was. And it was just like sounded like an easy job. Uh-huh. So I went in and realized like right away that that uh, once when when I got the when I got my first sale, some kind of uh, endorphins like rushed through my body and yeah. I felt more alive than I would felt in a long time. And I kind of started developing this, this hunger and desire. And I became obsessed with, with trying to outdo everybody in the room, but without, you know, lying and cheating and telling people the, you know, the pipe dream. Um, And it just kind of developed. And I, I became, you know, just really good in sales. I was always up at the top and I was able to make, you know, 1500 bucks a week with a kid with no high school education. And to me that felt like all the money in the world at the time. Um, But Call centers, telemarketing in South Florida, you know, between the companies getting shut down, uh, you'd burn out after a while, the leads would kind of dry up yeah. and it just became kind of, you know, then I was thought maybe, well, maybe I'll open my own call center. So I started kind of dabbling in that area and selling different products from loan modifications, student loan consolidation, uh, credit restoration and credit restoration seemed to be the one that had the best opportunity to uh, to stick around a while because all, all of the other ones were kind of based on, yeah. you know, the housing market sucks. There's loan modification. Right. Uh, student loans are going through the roof. You can, but as soon as that would kind of iron itself out, those industries would die away. People are always going to F up their credit. Yeah. And need, need some kind of assistance in that. So I was like, oh, credit repair. Uh, so I it's it, I was horrible at running a business though. I had no <laughs> idea what I was getting into purchasing leads. I had no idea about taxes. I was just kind of not paying my taxes and not reporting awesome. anything, you know, I, using the bank account as my own personal bank account. Um, employees wouldn't get paid on time because, you know, I, I would forget. And <laughs> it was just people charged back. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, uh, you know, kind of the whole same story here a million times. Yeah. I mean, businesses open and fail every day. And it's, it's usually not because of the product right. or service, it's usually because of the person running the yeah. business. So,
0: um how old are you when you started this uh 19? You're a teenage entrepreneur who's running your own business and trying to figure out all of the complexities
1: <laughs> you, that go on. When you along say it that it. way, it sounds a lot better. <laughs> yeah,
0: man. Look, hey, give yourself a little bit of credit here.
1: Well, at some point that will lead into the asking yeah. about my podcast. You can ask me about that later. Yeah. But that's kind of the segue. Um so, yeah, so I had this credit repair company for 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 several years um uh several years, and it was just there would be some months where it was like really, really good, and then uh-huh. I would have like one or two really good months, and I would adjust my lifestyle to go, no, it's always gonna be this good. you know, I'm buying you know really go nice car. sports car, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I did. I went out and bought an m three and thought like, oh I'm sure. Done top dog in the world. And I was amongst some of my friends because I was a lot younger than a lot of, or I was, uh, I, I was making these choices yeah. and little money grabs at a younger age, like you said, 19, 20 years old. But then I started having kids. Uh, my, my daughter was born when I was 21. My first uh-huh. daughter, Caitlin was born at 21. Um, and then everything kind of changed because priorities changed. Right. Even though I wanted to change my priorities, I still was a kid myself, 21 years old. I didn't really know how to make that full segue into going from, you know, complete moron to responsible father. So I just continued to make stupid choices. And, you know, I loved my kids. My kids loved me and I have a great relationship with them to this day. But there was a lot of uh, a lot of poor decisions made that would have been like they moved around a lot. They had to change schools a lot because I was always you know, I would I would have a ten thousand dollar month, but yet my my rent wouldn't get paid because wow. I would yeah go spend the money and think oh, I'll make the I'll make this next month and just pay the rent. I just didn't have any priorities. Their check boxes weren't being checked. It was yeah. a free for all. Yeah.
0: You're obviously pretty good at this because you get a pretty amazing offer, or at least what sounds like a pretty amazing offer when you're running this business and that offer is to go uh, into business in Georgia.
1: Yeah, so that happened. I I was looking for a new office space, and I found this office over on Yumato in Boca Raton. Uh, it's called Maggot Mile because every Maggot within that miles, mile, yeah, Maggot Mile. Because within that strip on Federal Highway, it's it's every scam business in <laughs> Uncle is opened on Maggot Mile.
0: If you so, give a name like Maggot Mile, you got to kind of know what goes on during Maggot Mile. I mean, everybody can figure out what kind of businesses we're talking about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was thriving on old people and their money and taking just really looking for the gullible person. Uh Um, I wasn't necessarily looking for that. I was looking for office space. And this happened to be where the office spaces were somewhat affordable. And I found these, these guys that had a magazine subscription call center with about, uh, I guess that about 2,000 square foot of space. And they were only using about 700 of it. Uh-huh. They had planned to, to move into the rest and they didn't. So they were like, hey, if you want to rent out this section of the office, we've got cubicles and all that stuff in there. I was like, oh, F&A, let's do it. Um, so while I was doing this, business was going really bad. Like I was barely making enough to pay people that were on the phones. And the guys that owned the office or uh-huh. leasing it, whatever you want to call it, I would overhear them talking all the time about how they're getting ready to open this doctor's office. And there's all this potential and all this money to be made. And I finally kind of like inserted myself and I said, Hey, uh, I, one of the guys, this guy, Sean, Uh I asked him more about it. he's like, well, Lou, the financier of the whole thing. He's like, you got to run this by Lou. Lou's the one. So I didn't hear anything again for like a couple of weeks. I kind of dropped it. One day, Lou—he's this Italian guy—is like, "Hey, hey, Dan." You- <laughs>
0: I got this image of what Lou looks yeah. like in my mind yeah. right now.
1: Yeah, my name's Lou. You know, he carries. He always had a gun on uh-huh. him. Some guys, you know, look like either was in the mafia here, really wanted to be in the mafia. He Lou to,
0: was on the TV show. The Sopranos is what you're saying, basically. Yeah, I think he yeah. was
1: probably only on the TV okay. show. I don't think he actually, actually lived the life. Yeah. I think he just wanted people to think that. Well, he comes up to me and he's like, Hey, so, uh, Sean says you want to get involved Well, you know, maybe we'll give you the office manager job. And I was like office manager job of a doctor's office. And he's like, yeah, 10 grand a month. We'll pay all your expenses. <laughs> I know you got kids, so we'll transfer you back and forth. So you can still come to Florida and see your kids. I was like, well, you know, I live with my fiance and my best friend. She's he's like, yeah, we need to hire people. We'll put you in charge of that too. You want to hire them? I don't care. Are they good people? You know, it's just very, yeah, yeah.
0: very fast talking and telling you everything that you wanted to hear, and
1: then. But even then, the little voice was like, "Dan, wake up, man. Yeah, you know better than true. They always always say, "Yeah, sale uh, a sales guy is the easiest guy to sell because it's just you know." The song and dance. And I was like, all right, great. Let's do it. And um, Shelly didn't want to go. My girlfriend, she did not want to go. She was like, this doesn't sound right. Something doesn't smell good here, right? Yeah, we don't know nothing about running a doctor's office. You're going to be managing this place. She's like, why? And come to find out the real reason they want uh, Aside from my amazing ability to talk to people the real reason was, is I wasn't a drug addict. I wasn't a thief. And they wanted somebody that wasn't going to steal, gonna steal the product. Off. That's really right. come to find out that was their big, that was their big ploy with me. So they offered me the job and I'm like, great, let's take it. So the, it's coming around to a time we're supposed to move. And he's like, all right, before, before we open the office, we've got to do marketing. we got to make sure we got people coming. And I'm like, all right, we, Facebook ads. He's like, no, 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 a little, a little different type of marketing. And I'm, I'm thinking, all right, whatever. I've been marketing my whole all life. Right. We know what to do. So they come up with these crazy ideas, like you can't even make this stuff up. They get us some walkie talkies. I was going to um, say,
0: you got to tell me one or two of these ideas because I'm oh, dying to hear them.
1: It was talk about guerrilla marketing. So they, okay, so the idea was, is we were opening the pain clinic in Savannah, Georgia. The uh-huh. reason why we were doing Savannah, Georgia, is right off I-95 is yep. Savannah, Georgia. Sure. Most of the people traveling to Florida to get their prescriptions were coming from like Kentucky and Ohio and and, and way far north right. of Florida. So they wanted to open this place that was a pit stop before you get to Florida so they could try to consume the business, give people less distance to drive. Makes sense, but how do you let these people know you're open? So right. what they had to do for about a month, we'd go to Jacksonville to one of the biggest pain clinics at the time. It was on Blanding Boulevard. They were probably seeing somewhere in the neighborhood of like 300 patients per day, uh, which is phenomenal. A lot of patients. Um, And this wasn't the only place they had us do this at, but this is what they had us do at multiple places. They'd have us get a hotel right next to one of these other big pain Uh uh, pain clinics. So we had like a high-rise hotel where we could see the pain clinic from, from our balcony. One guy would be up in the, uh, up in the balcony with his binoculars and his radio. <laughs> go we get them. Watch, we'd watch for cars right. pulling in with out-of-state tags on them. So when the cars were pulling for out-of-state tags, like, all right, we got a Volkswagen, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. they would either have us go sneak into the line and hand these people cards in line, or they'd wait until the cars were pulling out, and then they would, I'd be in the car in the street with somebody else in the car, and they would tell us, all right, the Volkswagen, blue Volkswagen's pulling uh-huh. out. We would literally get behind them, flag them down, pull them over. They must have thought I was a cop. Wow. An yeah. Officer, and jump out of the car and they just looked, I mean, they were so su- suspected sketchy. Oh yeah. I was like, Hey, I'm not a cop. We just opened a pain clinic in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, Cause you can only fill your prescriptions every 30 days. Uh-huh. So we tell them instead of driving all the way back to Jacksonville on your next stop, we got a brand new pain clinic opened up here. The doctor writes real heavy prescriptions. We'll give you a discount on your first visit, and we're gonna save you like six hours of travel time. So we did this for about a month, and uh, it was it was nuts because we were working. You know, they'd have us going three in the morning. We would be traveling around the little wow, shitty, snighty hotels, motels, oh, wow. looking for out of state tags and putting cards on their cars. So we did all this marketing, and when we opened, I mean, we were packed day one, and it was all from doing this crazy. Yeah. You know, it, there was a, a fun element to it, you know, because it's, I mean. Yeah, like, the
0: fun was I just pulled somebody over and they didn't shoot me when I went up to their window. Right. Anytime you have to start yep. a sales pitch with, I'm not a cop, you can kind of I, have an idea of where this
1: conversation is going to go. But yeah, go yeah. for it. And I, I was just have it, there was this exciting element to it. Yeah. And for all of the things that you just stated, the fear of all of these things, it would, if if you felt dead inside, you felt alive when you're doing when right. you're doing that because it's just every emotion is flowing through your body at the same time. Um, so now they they transfer me from doing this street crap to the actual pain clinic, and the training on managing a pain clinic consists of these two girls that had been working at one of the other pain clinics for a while that were nurses um, air quotes nurses air quotes nurses I forgot not everybody's watching. Uh, so they were telling me, oh, we got to do this. We got to do that. And really the only, again, yeah, the only purpose they had me there was to make sure nobody was stealing. Yeah. Um, when patients would come, they didn't want a ton of patients like loitering outside because it was look suspect. So right. we would kind of, kind of wrangle people in and herd them into their cars. And then when people would come in and see the doctor, uh, sometimes the doctor based on whatever he saw in their MRI or whatever they were telling him, he didn't really think they were they were in needing of these high-level Oxycontins and Percocets. But he didn't want to tell them no. He would say, all right, go have a seat. We'll call you up in a few minutes. So he would send back a prescription for, like, ibuprofen or something. Wow. And be like, oh, by the way, Dan, I need to tell them that they're only getting ibuprofen and that they, they drove, you know, 44 <laughs> they, hours yep, yep. in a car. Yeah, so I'd have to bring these people into a room. Be like, so, unfortunately, and they would just lose it. I mean, I bet if, if I didn't think, if I thought I was going to get shot, Pulling these people over, I thought for sure,
0: yeah,
1: one of these, you know, drug addicts for all intents and purposes was gonna snap and kill me. Um, so I had to do that. That's the main role of the hat that I wore. And the first doctor that we had, his name was Dr. Azmat. He was only there three days. And did you say should...
0: hazmat as in
1: hazardous material, or did you... that's what that's what's what the prosecutor yeah. called him at okay. trial? Uh-huh. No, his name was Azmat A Z M A T. Um, Dr. Asmat was there three days and I got a call from one of the owners and said, hey, we need you to have a talk with Asmat. Said, what do you mean? Uh, everybody's calling that he's the prescriptions he's writing are too low. Like people were used to getting whatever quantity yeah. he, he was giving them like half. So I go, I go in his office and he's a Middle Eastern guy. I'm like, hey, Dr. Asmat, uh, Sean wanted me to talk to you. He's like, about what? And he's very stern. <laughs> yeah. Like total, total. You. And I was like, oh boy. I was like, so I told him the problem, man. He just, he, he shut me down mid-sentence. He goes, you're not going to come in here and tell me how to write prescriptions. It's my license on the line. So I was like, all right. Message. All right. Yeah. Message. Yeah. So I went and called the guys and they were like, fire them. I'm like, fire them. I, I've never fired you them have to fire their doctor for them. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, So I went in and said, um, unfortunately, Dr. Azmat, today's going to be your last day. And he's mother F this, mother F and yeah. that. He leaves. So they takes about a week uh, before we find a new permanent doctor. In between him leaving and the new permanent doctor, Dr. Gossett was the new permanent uh-huh. guy. But in between that, they were using uh, one of those medical staffing companies who had like just random doctors yeah. And these random doctors, when they would get there, they were like, This something's not right about this place. Like they could just they could Walk smell in the it, door it. and tell it, right? yeah, I mean yeah. everybody's bears from out of state. they most people won't clean they showered. Their kids are barefoot. It was just a very, very grim, nasty scene to be a part of. Um, And this is when I started getting wind and starting kind of understanding like what pain clinics. and Yeah, you know, what so this is the really-
0: perfect time. Let me interrupt you, man. Why don't sure. you tell people about pain clinics? Because there are a lot of people listening that are unfamiliar with this, never been in the doors of one of these, and they don't know what you're talking about right now. So sure. give everybody a little bit of description of what it is that you're supposed to be managing for Sean and Lou. Yep.
1: So pain clinics basically, uh, aka pill mills, were heroin became like uh, heroin's always been the number one like yeah. uh, opioid drug that, that that drug addict seeking individuals addicted to opiates heroin was the one that they would go for but it would become expensive it would come hard to get it would be tainted with whatever uh-huh. else drug and you're, you're fentanyl and Odein so these these doctors uh, big Pharma started selling and promoting um, Oxycontin way back when, and they were promoting it as a non addictive drug. They're like, this has got a 0.000, a 0. 000 whatever <laughs> percent chance of becoming addicted. So regular doctors started started first uh, administering this mm-hmm. to their, their patients for like regular pain. And then, of course, we all come to find out that it is highly addictive. So regular doctors kind of stopped prescribing it. But these pain clinics, these legal, uh, these, these uh, criminals out in the world realized that there's a way to make money here because they could open an office. They didn't have to be a doctor. They could open an right. office, hire a doctor. Um, and you could, there's two parts to this. You could open the doctor's office and you could also establish a pharmacy in one location uh-huh. where you're writing the prescription and you're filling, you're filling the prescription at the same time. And you know, people are coming there spe- specifically because they're addicted to heroin right. and these oxycotton and oxycodone. If you would crush them up, you could snort them, you could turn them into a liquid form, and people could shoot it just like they would heroin. Um, and then OxyContin changed its yeah. molecule format to where you, it, it was now time-released, so they had to come up with other drugs. They'd come up with OxyCodone and Percocets and all mm-hmm. these other drugs that would, that would kind of perform the same task. Well, it became a legalized way to sell drugs on the street. So all of these people started getting wind, and all of a sudden, pain clinics started popping up, especially in South Florida. They were just they were just riddled. There was a pain clinic on every single corner, and there was no there was no communication system put in place yet because there's something called doctor shopping. If uh-huh. I get a prescription filled today, a thirty day supply, I can't go see another doctor again for thirty days because I've got this prescription. However, there was, there was no oversight of this. So you would get a guy that would go to Dr. A today or to Dr. B today. And each place is getting 120, 120, 120 um, uh, amount of, of pills. And he would use some of them for sure. But what they were doing is they would have these sponsors. Let's say I'm a sponsor. I'll go find a bunch of drug addicts that live in my local Mm -hmm. area. And I'll say, Hey, I'm going to take you to a pain clinic in Florida. So we're all going to hop in a car and go for a road trip. I'm going to pay for all of your doctor visits. So the doctor visit, let's say it's two fifty to $300 just to walk in and get seen by the doctor. The doctor is going to write you. And these doctors are all, they all know what time sure. it is. So they all know yeah. they're going to write these prescriptions. So the deal was with the, with the, uh, with the, uh, what did I, what did I say? It was called the guy that's uh, the sponsor. Yeah. So the sponsor me, I'm going to drive, 15 people to the pain clinic, I'm going to pay all of their $200 fees. And then when they get the prescription, we split the prescription, they give me half the pills, they get the other half so they can go get high or whatever. Uh And then I turn around and sell these pills on the street value on a something like an oxycodone back then, like a 30 milligram oxycodone could be 30, 40, $50. And these people have insurance, they're getting these pills for, you know, maybe a couple hundred bucks at best, if that sometimes free so it's and then you've got this times 15 people these these sponsors are making 15 20 grand profit uh per run yeah. and just talk about destroying lives if you've ever seen a movie or or if you've ever seen the movie blow or you've yeah. ever seen any of these movies where what somebody does when they're on heroin how they nod off and overdose and and have infections in their veins and they're not taking care of their kids and their kids are picking up the drugs and getting high uh-huh. and dying i mean this is this is kind of what pain clinics were promoting, what they were doing under the disguise of an of a legitimate right. doctor's office. Uh, and, and there was nothing, nothing legitimate about it.
0: Yeah. So for the listener that is familiar with this part, this is the moment in American history where prescription pills became the number one drug addiction problem in America and stayed that way for many years. In fact, it took a long time for people to even admit out loud, like we have a major drug addiction issue and it just happens to be prescribed drugs. Even big pharmacy companies were reluctant because of how much money were billions of dollars worth of profit in this. And it was all air quotes legal as long as you had a doctor. So now let's just be honest, Dan, you're pretty much running a, uh, you know, no, a, uh, you're pretty much a drug dealer, or you're managing a uh, a drug dealership in yep. out of state uh, and doing and this until the whole, the whole
1: reason they went to Georgia, by the way, is because Florida had just passed a law trying to damper this, sure. where um, you no longer could have your pharmacy and the doctor's office uh-huh. in the same location and it had to be owned by a doctor so georgia didn't have that law yet so that's why of course
0: yeah so let's just go across the border and do the same thing we were doing here where the laws haven't caught up yet and so now you're in charge of this place when the the police uh roll in the door describe this this day whenever you're at work and the pill mill gets shut down
1: yeah well it's it's there's a little bit more to the story to get to that part that's going to be important to this so we have the pain clinic things are going Kind of well, I'm starting to become aware that that wow, these are all drug seeking individuals, and and starting to have some some thought processes with that, some feelings about it. Uh, and on top of it, I was I'm gonna go down as the worst drug deal in the world because I made no money <laughs> yeah. from this. You're the, the guy who's deal.
0: doing all of the work and getting yeah. nothing out of it. The most I sure. ever
1: made in a week there was 700 bucks. Just to be clear, that's <laughs> the most I ever made in a week. Yeah, um, so any they idiot on they the wanna
0: street wanna... can make that in a couple of nights
1: go ahead. They're they're like, all right, Dan, I know we promised you this. He goes, here, here's the thing. We're going to give you your own clinic. He said, we're going to open another one in Atlanta and we just secured the place. We need you to go down. And there's already a staff in place there because it was an existing pain clinic already that I guess they were taking over. They wanted me to go train the staff at this place. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Now you want me to go to Atlanta? Right. So they had me in Atlanta living out of a hotel room. And I, I was there maybe a week every morning when I would go into the office, um, I would call Shelly, my girlfriend, uh-huh. she was at the other pain clinic and we would talk on the way in. Well, this morning she doesn't answer her phone. I thought, oh, maybe she's just busy. So I called my friend who also was working there. He doesn't answer his phone. Uh, I go on to uh, we have a, a, a webcam, another a webcam, a camera system that's uh-huh. uh, IP Internet where you can log in and see the office. So I try to log into the cameras and I can't I can't see into the cameras then I get a call from Sean, Sean, one of the owners. He's like, Hey, you spoke to Shelly or Costa. And I said, no, he goes, man, I can't get a hold of him either. So I'm like, wow, this is really strange. So I called, there's a a business that was right next door to the clinic in Savannah called Thatsos burgers. And we'd become good friends with them because all our patients would go over there and use the bathroom and stuff. And uh, Tony answers the phone. I was like, Hey Tony, this is Dan from next door. And he goes, where are you? I was like, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, there's like, He's exaggerating. He's like, there's 500 cops out here and they're looking for you. I was like, for what? And I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm panicking. Cause I yeah. have, I'm still dumb to this whole thing. I had no idea. So I'm freaking out. I go back to my hotel and I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God. So I'm like, all right, I'm just going to, I'm going to drive back to Savannah. So I go back to the pain clinic, the one in Atlanta. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking to myself, all the money's going to be gone. I haven't gotten paid. So I go into the safe. And there wasn't a lot in there. It's like maybe two grand in the safe. Uh-huh. I took two grand out of the safe. I put it in uh, one of the bank deposit bags and got my, uh, my rental car. I was, I was they rented me. Uh, they sure rented me a nice car instead of paying me. They gave me a nice convertible Camaro rental right. car. And I get in the car and I go to back up and I hear a tap on the window. And it's just this guy standing next to me. So I rolled up my window. He's like, Dan. And he looks at me and the way he said my name, I'm just assuming he must be a patient yeah. that you go to Savannah. And I was like, yeah. All soon as I, as soon as I uh, identified myself, uh, da, get out of the That's car. That's right. Yeah, see him, man. Sprung me out of the car. Um, they they had nothing to charge me on in that moment, but there was a pill on the ground, and the D agents that arrested me had no idea what was going on. They were just D, D agents in another county. They got a phone call to go to go arrest somebody. They didn't know the story. They didn't know yeah. about the pain clinics. So they're like, we saw you throw that pill on the ground. And I was like, I, I didn't throw a pill on the ground. I'm-, I'm getting really upset about this. And finally, they're like, so why is there a pill on the ground? I was like, you- you're at a pain clinic. They, Needless to say, they they ended up charging me with that one pill. That's how they were able to like detain me in that moment. All right. Um, and that's when everything kind of came to a head initially. But I thought, nah, this is like, they brought me to county jail. I was in county jail for like two days. Uh, the DEA came to see me. And this is, this is when I realized how bad the situation was. I was so happy they were there because I was like, this whole thing is going to get ironed out. Yeah. And they were real nice. They're like, hey, Dan, so we're going to just like tell us what happened. And he's, he kept calling me, bud. He's like, come on, bud, tell me what happened. So I started to tell him. He's like, yeah, but, but you knew it was an illegitimate operation. You knew. And I was like, well, I mean, everybody had an MRI. Technically, between me and the wall ethically it was as wrong as wrong could be but within the scope of the law we weren't outside the the law law. yeah so that's what i was like i mean if if you don't want us open shut us down i was like uh, then he gets up slams his hands on the desk you're not effing helping yourself Oh, he went from good cop to bad cop oh yeah yeah. yeah. he is does he know that he's supposed to be a
0: totally different it's supposed to be a totally different person that goes from good cop to bad cop
1: Oh, it was the same one, man. Doug Kahn. never. Fra- I actually named right. the goldfish after him when I got out. Doug Kahn. He uh he made it real clear. He made it real clear on, on the charges I was facing, and I still didn't understand what conspiracies and all of these things meant. But uh, they left that day, and I I couldn't bond out initially because I'm not from Georgia, and they wanted whoever was going to bond me out. They wanted them to have a right. local driver's license. Um, the doctor that we ended up hiring after the one that was full time, Doctor mm-hmm. Gossett, his wife Amanda. Uh, sweetheart of a woman. She drove down and bonded me out and put her license up there and stuff and didn't know me from Adam, but, but it was without that, I would have sat the yeah. entire time. Um, So I hadn't been indicted at this point. I was under investigation. Uh, they offered me what's called a pre indictment plea, which basically I was like, I'll take anything. If I don't have to go to prison and my attorney said, well, if you sign this plea, it's a 60 month cap. Uh, you're going to be facing up to 60 months in prison. And I was I, 60 I D-
0: months, house. six, zero, five years, six zero, five yeah, years, okay. a
1: car, a car, uh, car loan term. Yeah. Um, I, I was like, there's no way I was like, I'm not going to prison. And this was a federally appointed attorney. So I, I'm thinking this is because I have a public defender. Yeah. He's, he's working for the government. So fired him and, and came up with money, scrambled, hired a private attorney. Uh, we, we denied, we, we turned down the plea offer uh-huh. of the pre indictment, and this was in 2000. Um, like the end of 2012. Okay. Beginning of 2012. And Shelly at this point, she had never been indicted she, like other than the day when they originally, so when they got me in the car, uh-huh. they raided my, that, the house that same morning. And that's when they got Shelly and everybody else and the doctor, they roped them all. We all got hit at the same time, uh-huh. uh, but Shelly never got arrested. She was just that, that morning they just they detained her, but they released her. Um, so when I turned down my plea deal, I didn't hear anything for like a year. I had opened a new call center. Things were going great. We had a nice investor. You know, I was paying my taxes. All I right. was, things were on top. Shelly went and got her cosmetology license. She opened her own hair studio. Uh, we were doing great. And then one morning, uh, early, early 2014, uh, we're living back in Palm Beach and we hear a tap at the door. We live in a townhouse. I heard the gate rattle. We have one of those big privacy fences uh-huh. around, around the townhouse. So Shelly's in the shower getting ready for work. And I get up out of bed and I walk to the balcony. I look down and I see the gate open and a guy walks in, a regular guy knocks on the door. And when he knocks on the door, he I, I look down and he leans back and he makes eye contact with me. As soon as uh-huh. he saw me, the door opens. And as he's opening the door, I see heads coming around yeah. the fence. It must've been a dozen of them. Uh-huh. And I hear US Marshals coming in, but they're asking so they are screaming, Shelly Morford, Shelly Morford. And for a second, I'm not going to lie, I was like, whoo, they're not here for me. Um, <laughs> I know that sounds effed up, but it was just a yeah, natural reaction. He
0: just gave up his girlfriend, like, let him go take he, her to jail. He lives. did it. It's not me. It's her <laughs> it's, fault.
1: It's her fault. He was her, ringleader. So I go down the stairs. Before I could get halfway down the stairs, they've got guns pointed at me. Identify yourself. Uh, my little chihuahua was on the landing. They got guns pointed at my dog. So I pick up my, my little wow. dog, Oliver. And when I identified myself, they were like, we have a warrant for your arrest out of Savannah, Georgia. And I was like, oh, and I knew what it was then. Oh, wow. They put me in handcuffs. They sent a female upstairs. They got Shelly out of the shower. She was indicted. And Shelly's never had a speeding ticket. When she walks down the stairs, when she gets right next to me, she looks at me dead in the eyes. And she's like, don't say an effing word. I was like, okay, babe. Wow. Um, yeah. So uh, that was the day that I became indicted. Um. They put me in county jail. I was in county so uh, they brought me to county jail that day. We had a bond hearing that was also taking place later that afternoon. And while we were in the car with the D agents driving to uh, the federal courthouse, they said, uh, the feds are recommending a bond for you, Shelly, but they're recommending no bond for you, Dan, because you'd said you're a flight risk and they haven't been able to find you, which is not true at all. They yeah. knew exactly where I was. I was getting documentation. So we get to court. I have a private attorney at this point, but he, he's in Georgia and I haven't. they didn't let me call yeah. him. So they appoint me this public defender guy and he comes over and he's like, so they want to deny you bond. And I tell him the reasons are all bullshit. As like, I have an attorney. He goes, look, here's the deal. If we go in front of the judge right now, I goes, I don't have anything to verify what you're saying. The chances are the judge is going to deny the bond and you won't be able to go back in front of this judge until your court date sentence, which ended up being a year and a half, two years later. So he said, or we can ask the judge to postpone your bond because there's some information that's yet to be brought up i'll get everything for, so it took a week to get all this information so mm-hmm. i had to sit in county jail for a week waiting uh what my bond hearing um they we, we showed them all the evidence that they knew i they had sent me a check because i was going back and forth uh-huh. to my house i mean clear as day they knew where i lived so the the judge scolded them pretty good for uh, trying to manipulate and you know they were mad that i turned down a plea deal yeah. so that's why they came after shelly and they were trying to play extra extra tough but uh, we fought it for a few months after that. Everybody was in, everybody on the defense was in cahoots to go to trial uh, because even though what we did was, was morally as about as effed up as it can get legally, there wasn't a law they could prove that was broken. Because mm-hmm. we weren't writing prescriptions without people having at least valid MRIs, uh, which is what the state required. Um but at the last, the last hour, within a couple of weeks, people started taking plea deals out of fear, you know, cause we were facing, you know, 20 years, yeah, if we'd yeah. been trial lost. So my attorney calls me up and he's like, Hey, you know, we got to change our game plan. Everybody's taking a plea deal. So the plea, I had to basically call the government with my attorney on the phone and convince them that they should give me the same plea. They offered me a year and a half yeah. ago, I, I turned down and they were like, well, why don't you come down here to Georgia and sit at our desk and look at us in the eyes and convince us why we should give you a plea yeah. list. I mean, just totally. So I had to spend more money, go down there and basically grovel for a plea deal. Uh, and they gave it to me because in the day, they didn't want to go to trial. They didn't have to, but uh, they gave me a plea deal that capped at 60 months. Um, and Shelly went to court. Shelly was the first one to get sentenced. She was the low man on the totem pole. We all thought she was going to get probation, which was what a set kind of a good right. parameter for the rest of us. And when the judge gave her 13 months, um, the rest of us knew. You it knew was it was going to be, yeah. Oh. yeah it was, it was So,
0: let me cut to the chase. You ended up going to prison. Um, yep. Tell 42. everybody what uh, the judge, what the sentence was.
1: 42 months is what the judge gave me.
0: And how much of that 42 months did you actually serve in a federal prison?
1: So, I served 13 months out of the 42 months uh, due to a program called RDAP, Residential Drug Abuse Program, which is a 500-hour cognitive behavior therapy program that takes place in the prison system uh-huh. and F- knocks a year off your sentence for taking that program.
0: Yeah. Um, so there's two things that are happening right now. I hope people are hearing this. You're what you're doing. You believe according to the law is perfectly legal, though, you know, in your mind, in the back of your mind, it's very ugly, very unethical, but definitely not illegal. And eventually everybody around you starts to say, all right, I'll take a deal rather than go to jail for 20 years. You take the deal, you go to jail for just over a year. And obviously that year leaves a big impact on you because you take a prison sentence and you turn it into kind of a mission in life. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's. That's pretty much how it went down.
0: Yeah. Tell everybody what, not just what changed, but how much prison impacted you so that you are now helping people prepare for and helping them uh, adjust.
1: So uh, when I was getting ready to go to prison um, for my 42-month sentence, I had I posted a video on YouTube three days before I started my prison sentence, and I titled it, I'm going to prison for 42 months. I was still in my mind, I had no accountability taken. And I found out about this program, RDAP, residential drug abuse program. And if you qualify for the program, it can knock a year off your sentence. So I'm like, how the F do I scam yeah, my way in right. this program? Um, I'm thinking it's gonna be like AA or something, where you just kind of go there, sit around and at the Talk end you about your
0: feelings. Message.
1: Right. Nobody yeah. fails. Yeah. So I get into this program because uh the the way they 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 decided that I can I qualified because I smoke weed. And I would drink alcohol on the weekends. So that is what qualified me as a substance abuse user. So I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be cakewalk. Well, RDAP, little did I know, had really nothing to do about drugs. and alcohol. I mean, it did, but it was more about cognitive thinking, uh-huh. focusing. But you had to hold each other accountable. So there was no just sitting there quiet. It's 10 months of intense, in. it's inpatient therapy because you're living in a special right. unit. So this 10 months, I just, I couldn't get out of my own way. Every time I thought I could beat them they had seen a million people like me before this system. And it was just finally, I I said to myself, Oh my God, like they're going to kick me out of this program if I don't start taking it serious. So I started going through the motions. And when I started going through the motions, holding myself accountable and pretending to hold myself accountable initially, something, something triggered midway through the program. And I realized I'm like, sorry, I don't know if you can curse me here, but don't do that. You are a piece of garbage. Like you lived your entire life thinking you could just mouthpiece your way out of every situation, and that's why you're here right now. So if you got to be here, why don't you take this program serious and kind of see what effects it has? So when I started really kind of taking a deep look at myself and seeing how I could have lived my life different and all the poor choices I made, something just clicked, and it was like seeing The Matrix for the very first time. And I knew at that point that I, I wanted to take this newfound ability in here And bring it home with me. No intent of starting a business. I just knew that I didn't want to be the old me. And when I got out of prison, prison was a cakewalk for compared to what I thought it was going to be like. Just to throw that out there. But when I got home to the federal, they sent me to a federal halfway house for Uh my last months of my sentence. Uh, I checked my email for the first time. And I saw YouTube comment, YouTube comment, YouTube comment. I'm like, what is all these YouTube comments? I forgot I'd made that video. Yeah. And it was all comments from people getting ready to go through something very similar for the first time, nonviolent offender, white collar, whatever. Um, so I started making response videos just as a hobby, answering people's questions about, oh, this is what it was really like. This is what I wish I, had. but at this point I was taking responsibility. I yeah. was like, I Technically, I didn't break a law, but I was contributing to drugs getting on the street that destroyed lives yeah. and potentially killed little kids. Um, and talking about that on the YouTube channel, I think people started to resonate with it, and they saw how real I was being yeah. and being open about it. And about three months into it, I started getting phone calls from criminal defense attorneys uh, asking if they could if they could use me to work with their clients, and they basically started offering me um, commissioned. Uh, jobs to work with their clients. And it started off just kind of answering some basic Q&A. Yeah. And then when I saw, you know, the direction of where it was going, I thought, man, I not only can I make money with this, but it's something I can be proud of. So we went and hired a chemical dependency professional. We hired a an ex-attorney. We hired a uh, substance abuse coordinator, a life coach, um, professional writers. So we work with people on like what they say to their kids, letters they're going to uh-huh. write to judge, accountability, formatting. Uh, it we just turned into this whole little system that hadn't really been done before, and there was a couple of people in the industry that were doing it, but they were, you know, kind of pretending like they were attorneys and very white collarish. Yeah. And then here comes Dan, who's kind of like in a tank top a on a camera, video. going, "Hey!" Yeah. And uh, never looked back, man. And it took off. You know, we went from taking donations of five, six hundred dollars to a, a seven figure a year uh, career.
0: Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about federal prison time consulting in just a second. But before we do that, you are a guy who went to prison. So you know what you're talking about. And you and I were discussing this just before the episode started, man, I have countless friends of mine who likened serving in the US military to spending time in prison. So I want to do this high five segment. We're going to be quick about this sure. um, because we are kind of close to time, but I want you to talk a little bit about the, the things that, the, that prison was like, and then I want to just bounce back and forth with you about how my friends described being in the military like serving a prison sentence. So for somebody who has no concept of what it was like, talk a little bit, maybe your top five uh, things that that 13 month prison sentence uh, sure. left with you.
1: So uh, my my 13 months in prison, first off, I was at a low-level prison. I wasn't at like a maximum security uh-huh. where there's gang violence. Um, in the feds, you've got camps, lows, mediums, and penitentiaries. Camps and lows, you're not going to have any issues with anything. Mediums and higher, it gets a little bit more like what you see on TV. Yeah. But with that said, uh, my day, would, I mean, most of my memories are overwhelmingly positive of prison. Uh, wow, I was a, not many I was people a, can say that. I, I was in a dorm setting. Uh, I met some amazing individuals. Where we would get up in the morning, we would we would go eat breakfast together. We would walk the track. Uh, we would play sports together. We would take classes together. We would watch movies on movie night. Um, it, it was a lot of positive kinship in there. Where you know you have to get up early, you got to make your bed. A, a very a very structured environment, and there was a lot of guys in there that were ex-military that related and said how much this felt like they're going through basic training and whatnot, or when they would go overseas and, you know, live with your group of men. And there's just this, this bond, you know, that you share with these people. And for the most part, I mean, there's some, there's some people in there that you don't want to associate with, but for the most part, there's people in there just like you and me. Not everybody in there is like this street level criminal, right? There's doctors in there, lawyers, good people that made mistakes. Uh And you find these relationships with them, to where the days would fly. Time went by so fast in prison. Um, my mental health was had never been more clear. My physical, I've, I've never been in such good shape in my entire life as I was coming home from prison. And uh, you just, I never want to go through it again, but I don't regret yeah. the prison experience because it really taught me so much. And it prepared me for COVID completely. Talk <laughs> about being on lockdown yeah. and things like that. I mean, it, it, COVID, COVID was not to shake a stick at it.
0: You just described in 30 seconds, five, uh, vivid memories that I have from being in the military, living in the dorm together with a whole bunch of dudes, um, developing some pretty tight relationships with some amazing people having so much structure that you don't get to decide how your day goes, getting up together, working out together, going to breakfast together. Like what you just described is the first couple of hours of every day that I spent in the military. Um, and my guess is that's pretty much how the rest of the day went in prison, except for in the military. Um, you know, I got a chance to go home and spend time with my family at night. Right? Yeah, um,
1: and it's just—I I bet you can have memories of. You know, come the end of the day, you'd go into your buddy's bunk area, and you guys would sit, yeah, and talking about what you are going to do when you get out. Yep. hours would go by, and you go to bed. You feel just you feel fulfilled, like yeah. you, your energy is is everything is positive. And then mm. the real world, you know. Don't get me wrong, freedom is beautiful, but there's days where you miss that 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 massive interaction because there's you have a person, uh, you know, a, a room with a hundred guys yeah. in it. You can pick any. Oh, today I'm gonna go spend time with this guy because yeah. he's got this type of personality. You kind of have like your what, what's your favorite flavor of the month of who you're going to hang out with based on what you needed. Uh, It was, it was, it was an amazing experience that I, you know, a very unfortunate time uh, showed me.
0: Yeah. The camaraderie that I experienced in the military was without doubt, one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. Um, I want to go back to a moment you described just a second ago, when you decided in the RDAP program, I'm not only in this program to get a a year off my prison sentence. I got to get real. And I got to get real with myself about it. What, um, what snapped, what changed inside of you about that RDAP program that moment and how big of an impact did that leave on you?
1: The moment, the moment it snapped, I would say like the, that range of time was, I, I always thought when I would bullshit somebody or manipulate or tell people what Talk I want. Talk your way learn, out of a problem, right? I always thought they believed me. I always thought I was that good. And what I learned in RDAP that because there everybody's calling you out when you're when you're doing this. Uh-huh. What I realized is people in my real life just got so sick and tired of trying to give me direction. They were just like we're not even going to waste
0: it. Yeah, don't even Dan, bother.
1: Dan's so full of himself he yeah. doesn't even hear what he's coming out of his mouth. And when I saw that in there not just in myself, but I saw, you know, as I would get through the program further and further, I see new guys come in displaying those, those uh, misbehaviors and attitude problems. And I was like, oh my God, that's, that's what that I was was me, like. yeah. That was me, man. And I, and I didn't want to be like that anymore. Um And it almost was like instantaneous where things just, just, I was no longer pretending. Like I always pretended to have empathy. I always, I always thought I was like just this villain that was cold and didn't know how to feel I knew how to mimic and it was RDAP that I've, I think for the first time that, uh, I really cried without wanting somebody to see me doing it for yeah. any, you know, for, for theatrics. Um, it was, it was when I first realized that I was like, Oh my God, like I, I've ruined friendships. I've destroyed relationships. Um, you know, my, my poor kids had to, had to endure yeah. all of this, yeah. you know, it was, it was a lot to, it was a lot to, to grab onto and digest.
0: Yeah. Um, Dan, we don't have much time left, but I sure. want people to hear about you today. Look, it wasn't just a YouTube video. Hey, you, Hey everybody, I'm going to prison. Um, it wasn't just the comments after getting out of prison from a YouTube video, but you really did go through a profound change and decide, I want to help other people too. So tell everybody a little bit about what you're doing now. Tell everybody about the federal prison time consulting and your podcast
1: and your YouTube channel and what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, Pretty pretty cut and dry. I, I I do the same thing I've done now since I got out of prison. I work with first time nonviolent offenders for the most part, white collar and blue collar alike. People that um, made a big mistake and now they're going to jail for it. And and people think, oh, you're helping them prepare like how to how to handle prison. A very small part of it. It's the the real prison sentence for me was from the time I got in trouble until I actually went to prison, that, not yeah. knowing. That was the real fear of, of what you see on TV. Oh, man, that all, hangs over your this. head
0: like a dark cloud every day.
1: Yeah, you're ashamed, you're embarrassed, you you don't want to take responsibility. And, you know, people going through this, most of them are guilty for what whatever they did. They're guilty of it. And being able to help them navigate through how important it is to take accountability, but, but be able to demonstrate what that really looks like beyond just, I'm sorry, I'm going to take a plea deal helping them, what they say to their judge, what they're going to display to their kids. We, if Like if you're you're a doctor, correct?
0: Yes, but okay, not so a medical doctor, just so that everybody knows. I can't write a prescription for pain pills. Don't ask me. And it's a PhD, <laughs> it. not an MD.
1: Well, so where'd you go to school at? In North Carolina. Okay, so the example would be, if you were my client, let's say you got in trouble for Medicare fraud or something like that, and you've taken your plea deal, it's public information. I'd say, uh-huh. all right, look, if you really want to be able to relate and, and have a chance at getting a better sentence, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to your medical school. We're going to get you on as a to do a speaking engagement where you're going to talk to the medical students about what you did mm-hmm. and how you were in that same seat as them, but you made this horrible decision in your life that you don't have to be defined by, but it is going to drastically change. You're yeah. going to go to prison because of this. And by displaying that and sharing that and showing that vulnerable side of and being humble, it's now showing these students that they're not just because they're going to go become a doctor doesn't mean they're, they're invincible against making bad choices. So it creates that cautionary tale and and it gives so much back to the defendant that's doing it where they think they're doing this. They think they're hiring me to get a better sentence, but all of them six months in, they all tell me, they're like, Dan, I can sleep because of you. I don't want to commit suicide anymore. Wow, It's I hope the feeling it's, it's an empowering feeling. And the fact that I can make money doing it at the same time, it just feels like it doesn't feel like it should be something that's happening. But I, I, every day I I tell myself how blessed I am. Yeah,
0: man. I hope people heard what you just said. Listen, because of what you're doing, you're not only helping the guy or the gal that's facing a prison sentence, not put a pistol in their mouth and kill themselves, but you're also helping other people not make a mistake. That's going to lead to prison and, man, you're you're making a world of difference. So Dan, if people want to find you, um, obviously they've, they've, they've got your YouTube channel. Um, you've got a podcast out there. Tell everybody about your, I'm supposed to ask you because your hoodie tells me to ask you about your
1: podcast. So tell everybody about your podcast. A uh, completely separate business idea. It's called Failure to Launch, an entrepreneur's roadmap. And it's just basically anybody that's made it somewhere successful, whether it's monetarily or just where they are in life, mm-hmm almost all of them have dealt with hardship and roadblocks that they had to overcome uh, before they are where they are. Yeah. So it's, it's bring on businesses that that kind of display all of the struggles to get where they are. Oh, but, man, uh, that's that's my awesome. podcast. but yeah, my YouTube channel for what I do, anything under RDAP Dan, you know, my handles RDAP Dan. Uh, if you just type in RDAP Dan in Google, yeah. if you want to find me, it's that simple. We're going to
0: put a link in the notes to this, but for people that are driving, spell that out for them. If they want to find you, where do they go?
1: Sure. RDAP stands for, so R-D-A-P, Dan, RDAP, Dan, or federalprisontime.com. And you can book a free consultation. We can chat about the weather. We can chat about your indictment, whatever you want to talk about for yeah. 15 minutes. All right,
0: Dan. Thanks, man. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for taking your experience and helping people not throw their life away or maybe preventing people from making the same mistakes.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I yeah, appreciate it. We'll see you.
0: Hey, I wanna go back to something that Dan said during this episode. There was a moment in prison in this program where he realized, I gotta stop faking it. I gotta stop faking it with other people. I gotta stop faking it with myself. And if I really want things to change, I'm gonna to have to do some hard work on me. And then Dan started to do some real honest reflection. Things started to change for him while he was in prison and now his life is radically different and Dan is helping other people get serious and make changes as well. Listen, the hardest person you'll ever have to lead, the most difficult circumstance you'll ever find yourself in is looking yourself in the mirror and realizing, I gotta make some changes and they're gonna be very painful, very costly, but if I don't make some changes, my life is going in a direction that I don't wanna see it go. I hope you've been encouraged. I hope you've been challenged by Dan's story today. Hey, if you heard this podcast for the first time and you liked what you heard, why don't you follow us on social media? Go to YouTube and subscribe at Unbeatable Podcast or on any of the prominent social media channels. But if you've been listening for a while and you want everybody else to know how awesome this podcast is, why don't you rate us on your favorite podcast platform? And by the way, we're now on Stitcher. We're on Tuned In. We're on iHeartRadio. We're all over the place. If you want to become part of the Unbeatable Army, this resource of guys and gals that are staying connected when these episodes are over with, why don't you go ahead and sign up at unbeatablearmy.com? I'll see you right back here next week when I introduce you to another amazing guest on Unbeatable.